0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In 1845, two ships left England. They were captained by Sir John Franklin and they were outfitted with over four years worth of food that could feed the crew of 127 men. They were out and leaving England to try to forge for the first time the Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage would be a way to get from England to the Pacific Ocean by going over the top of Canada. Needless to say, this was a perilous journey. And so they set out on these two boats, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. I think I'd rather be on Erebus than Terror. And they were ready to brave ice storms and polar bears, which we saw earlier today, which was kind of fun. But after two years, no one back in England had heard from them. Not a word was said about whether or not they had found their passage, if they had found their way through the ice of the Arctic North. And so expedition after expedition were sent to find them. And after years and years of searching, the only thing that they could come up with were some rumors from the Inuit people that they had died. In fact, these ships weren't found until 2014 and 2016. These ships remained lost for almost 160 years. And the only way that we ever found them was that there was an Inuit historian. His name was Louis uh, Kamukak. And Louis had been the grandchild of a woman who had found an artifact from one of these ships. He had devoted himself to history and he was able to collect these Inuit legends of these two ships that had crashed. Well, two years after the discovery of these ships, in 2018, another boat set out to make this same passage, except this time it was a cruise ship loaded with tourists and historians that were setting out from Thunder Bay, and they were going to retrace the journey of Sir John Franklin. They were going to retrace the history of this moment on a boat called the Academic Iofi. And let me tell you, it was set up to go through the north. It had all of the ice breaking equipment. It had 127 rugged Russian sailors who were used to sailing in the Arctic, and and there was a buffet. It was kind of posh, and they were they were so sure that this was going to be a safe journey that there was a 91 year old man named John Stewart, not that John Stewart, who they said, oh absolutely, you're a history buff and you love this story, come along with us, it'll be fine spoiler alert, it was not fine. Just just a few hours into the trip, the ship ran aground of rocks and ice. Less than 12 hours after they left Thunder Bay, the crew and tourists had to disembark from this boat and they had to abandon ship. This ship with all of the 127 Russian sailors and all of the amenities that you could ask for, a ship that was made by all the modern ways to go into this ice, couldn't make the trip. Couldn't even make it 12 hours into the trip. 170 years later, and all they could do was get 12 hours into the trip before they had to scuttle it. The frozen tundra of the Arctic is a perilous place. And so much can go wrong there. You can never take for granted your ability to navigate it. We saw that with Sir John Newton, and we saw that with the Ayafi, which with all of our modern stuff, still couldn't get it done. I tell you this story because as Christians, one of the things that happens to us and happens to our hearts is we get lulled into this sense of repetition with so much of our lives. So much of our lives is kind of the same thing day after day. You wake up, you eat breakfast or you don't, you drink coffee or you don't, you go about your business. And we think that we're practiced and experienced in in this sort of Christian discipline or that, that we've got this Bible reading thing down or maybe you're really good at praying and you're like, no, I'm good. I, I got this prayer thing down. We take it for granted that it can become repetition and we can forget what it really means to serve Jesus. Whether that's parenting our kids towards Jesus, whether that's uh, working at our jobs to the glory of God, or even me writing sermons, this repetition gives us a false sense of power and and accomplishment. We become accustomed to doing the tasks of life, the day-to-day things of life, and even of ministry. So much so that we forget that it is all completely dependent on the work of God, that he is the only way that we can accomplish anything meaningful in our lives. What happens is a subtle self-righteousness grows into self-sufficiency in our lives. As we return to the Gospel of Mark, now that Lent is over, now that we are celebrating the Easter season, we're returning to the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're going to look at chapter 9, and we're going to see the transfiguration of Jesus, which was an awe-inspiring event, which should have snapped the disciples out of their repetition, but instead it sort of cast a shadow over all the things the disciples just still don't get as we read this story. It's going to cast a shadow on their independence from Jesus and the work of his spirit. So if you're able, I would love for you to stand with me as I read Mark chapter nine. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, that's where I'll be. The words will also be on the screen behind me. Mark chapter nine. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have mercy and compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, "'Why could we not cast it out?' And he said to them, "'This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer.' They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, "'The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise.' For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For I truly say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to, with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It, for it is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So this passage begins with Jesus kind of calling his shot. He tells his disciples that some of them before they die are going to see the kingdom coming in power and they get to see just that. He takes Peter, James, and John up to the top of a mountain. And when he gets to the top of this mountain, He is revealed in all of his glory. It says that he is shining with clothes that are unnaturally white, a white that nobody on earth could get clothes to be. And he is bright. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up for a chat to just kind of hang with Jesus and see how it's going and talk about what's going on. Obviously, this moment should have inspired them to this sense of awe and wonder. And it did to an extent, but it also sort of inspired them to terror. And it kind of scared Peter so much that he decided he just needed to say something, right? Peter is never one to allow a moment of silence to pass and just sort of allowed to just be there and and say nothing. No, no, no. He says, oh, I've got an idea. There's three of you. Why don't we build three little tabernacles, three little tents where we can make offerings and, and take care of all of that for you? How about that? And what's interesting is Jesus does not respond to Peter in this case. Rather, a great cloud surrounds them and God speaks from heaven, just like he did at the baptism of Jesus. And he says to Peter, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then all of a sudden, the cloud dissipates and they're standing there with Jesus Looking like he did before on the top of the same mountain that they did before, just kind of everything is back to normal. Now, something that we miss in this story, because like it's easy for us to like look at it and like see Peter and be like, that guy. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not like Peter and I never say something when I should be quiet. I'm glad I'm not like, we quickly jump to that, but we miss sort of a fascinating detail here. We miss the detail of what Jesus says and does in this passage. Did you catch it? Did you catch what Jesus says? No, you didn't. Because he didn't say anything. Did you catch what Jesus does? You didn't. Because besides leading the people up onto the mountain, Jesus doesn't do anything. Jesus takes the disciples up to the mountain, and then God reveals Jesus' glory. The disciples make kind of a bonehead call, and then God speaks and tells them, nah, that's not how this is going to go. But Jesus is just there, and he is dependent on his Father for everything. In fact, we see this played out in the Gospel of John. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that he can do nothing except what he has been told to do by the Father, that he speaks nothing that has not been told and spoken to him by the Father. Jesus, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, is wholly dependent on the Father for his life and ministry. If that's true of Jesus, how much more so should that be true of you and I? Our lives are to be a theater of dependence on the work of God because we can so easily begin to take things for granted. We can begin to think that we've accomplished some things. We've grown to a a nice little point in our lives and we put our spiritual lives on autopilot. My guess is that this is true for you because I know that this is true for me. One of the ways I see this sort of sin and complacency working itself in my heart Is in the way that I prepare sermons. I I did the math in in October. um, it'll be twenty years that I have spoken weekly to a crowd about Jesus under the employment of a church. And if you kind of do the math of about 50 times a year, that shakes out to be about a thousand. At this point, I kind of have a rhythm for how I write. I kind of have a rhythm for how I study, and I can very easily just sort of click on the cruise control. I can just say, yeah, yeah, I know how to get, I know how to get a sermon out of a text. I'll just do that and call that a Wednesday. But nothing that I have to say, nothing that I have to say to you this morning, last Sunday, or next Sunday is of any value if the Holy Spirit is not at work. Nothing I have to say is of any value if I'm not depending on Him to be the one who speaks. Have I prayed about? you all as I prepare this sermon? Have I prayed for myself as I prepare this sermon? I mean, I can write a sermon without praying, theoretically. I can do it, but I also short circuit what God is calling me to. And so many of us do that in so many ways in our lives because we are taught by the world around us. We are discipled by the media that we take in that we are to be Independent, that we are to grow in our independence, but God is calling us to a countercultural level of independence. Or I'm sorry, dependence. Easy to mistake. Here's what the here's what all of the messages around us say: You need to become financially independent. You need to become emotionally independent. You need to be able to be able to live out a freedom that is radically independent of anyone else imposing rules on you. Beloved, that is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the evil one. The movement of Christians, our movement is not a movement towards spiritual independence where we can make it on our own, when we can do it ourselves, but rather what God wants us to move towards is radical dependence on him and radical interdependence on the covenant community that he is weaving us into being here at City Church. That's what Jesus was showing us at the transfiguration. God was showing how Jesus was dependent on him. And what happens as we walk through the rest of this chapter is we get a sort of almost comical, if they weren't tragic, series of events where the disciples are doing not that. I mean, as soon as they come down the mountain, as soon as they come down the mountain, they're confronted by the fact that the disciples are struggling with the fact that they can't cast out this demon. They've been trying, now they're arguing with the scribes and Pharisees, and you kind of get the picture that the dad is just like in the crowd, like, will somebody please help me, right? Like, like a new person at Mazzaro's who doesn't know to grab a number, they're just kind of standing there in this crowd, shocked and wondering what is happening, And so Jesus comes down and he sort of cuts through this and is like, what's the problem? Well, we've got a demon possessed boy that we can't fix. And so Jesus invites this father to tell his story. He slows down and takes a moment to listen to the story that this father is going to tell because this father is desperate. Anybody who has had a child with a, a long-term illness or a diagnosis that's not going away knows this desperation, and he is looking for something to depend on. And the father ends his story by saying, if, if you can do anything, any, any little thing you can do for us would be huge. Any help and compassion you can show to us. And Jesus sort of challenges the father. It's interesting. Jesus says, if, if I can do anything, you know who I am? I'm the son of God. If you believe all things are possible, he challenges this man's faith. And what does the man say? The man prays this beautiful prayer. It's four words. He prays this beautiful prayer. I believe, help me with my unbelief. In that moment, what he's realizing is that true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. Beloved, if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've had a position in ministry or not, if you've been a Christian for any moment, (coughs) you know how small, (coughs) excuse me, swallowing and speaking are not good to do at the same time. But beloved, if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that it's, that it, our faith often feels, oh, thanks, feels small and feeble. Our faith never feels like it's enough. If we step back and look and try to evaluate our faith, we're oftentimes left going, that's not a lot. It's not a lot. It's not the quantity of this man's faith that matters. It's the admission of his own inadequacy. He can't do anything. He can't help his son. And what small faith he has, he throws himself on the mercy of Jesus. He's our teacher in this text. This father is our teacher, not because of a grand act of faith, but because of his desperate dependence on what Jesus will do. Jesus sees this. Jesus hears this story and he heals the boy. And the faith of this father, this faith that says, I believe, help my unbelief is contrasted with the faith of the disciples. The disciples get back together after this, have a team meeting back in the house as they go home. And they ask Jesus, hey, um, why weren't we able to have that, you know, cast that demon out? debrief with us here. And Jesus says that this kind of demon only comes out through prayer. Stop. You've heard that verse before if you've been a Christian. Think about that. This kind of demon only comes out through prayer, which meant that the disciples were trying to cast this demon out without praying. They had decided that they had done this exorcism stuff enough times that they could just walk around and, you know, be throwing Benny Hens everywhere, right? Be throwing exorcisms wherever they went. Jesus says the reason why you couldn't do this is because you thought you were spiritually independent. You were trying to cast this demon out without even praying. Their self-righteousness had grown into self-sufficiency. And Mark gives us another example of this as we walk through the passage. They're on the way to the next town and they have an argument. They're on the way to the next town and they're arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus is saying, hey, we're making our way southwards towards Jerusalem and they're going to kill me when I get there. And all the disciples are like, okay, cool, but who gets the good seats in heaven? Like, I want to know who's front row. I want to know who's the greatest among us. And so Jesus calls a child. He gets a little child and he brings him to him. He holds this child in his arms. We see the compassion of Jesus towards children. But not only that, he tells them that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to become the last, the least, and the servant of all. In the ancient Near East, children were barely above the ranks of servants and slaves. They were people that should serve their parents and their masters. And Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? You have to serve the least and last. Those people in that society overlooks, those people who we find to be inconvenient, those people who are on the margins, those people who we have trained ourselves not to even see. Jesus says, if you want to be great, those are the people to serve. And it's only when we're completely dependent on Jesus that we can even begin to see these people. And Jesus takes this child and says, like this one, love and serve. It's only when we're focused on the face of Jesus that we begin to see his face reflected in the people that no one else will talk to. But the disciples still don't get it. You're going to see a theme. You should already see this theme developing through this passage. Because the next scene, the next little vignette we get, John is like, oh, by the way, Jesus, there was a guy who was doing an exorcism, and I told him to stop because he's not following us. So, huh? Right? Good for me, right, Jesus? Jesus? And Jesus is like, no, no, you're getting it wrong again. You're not, no. Jesus is is tells him, No, if if he's casting out demons in my name, let him, let him. Don't miss the irony here. What was it that the disciples had just failed to be able to do? Cast out a demon. And now someone else is able to do that. And what does John say? Well, you shouldn't be doing that because you're not following me. You shouldn't do that because you're not following me and you're not respecting the hierarchy here. The disciples weren't prayerful or dependent. And then they see somebody else and they want to tell them to stop. Beloved, this is exactly how self-righteousness works. This is exactly what it looks like in your heart and mine. Our shame from what we couldn't do, our shame from those things that we have done should make us dependent, should make us throw ourselves on the mercy of God. But instead, our natural reaction is to try to bring everyone else down to our level. I can't live up to the standards that I set, that's okay. I'm going to throw rocks at you until you're down here with me. We are so quick to tear others down instead of responding with humble confession. We point at someone else instead of doing the hard, uncomfortable, and awkward work of looking inside and asking why we are so quick to point out the flaws in others. Radical dependence on the Spirit of God is always far more concerned with our own sin and our own shame than it is with the actions of others. John, you don't need to tell this guy to stop casting out demons. And so Mark completes this sort of set of conversations. These areas that we need to radically rely on the Holy Spirit by giving several rapid fire examples the the last seven verses of the chapter are kind of these machine gun sayings where he keeps going after him and what he's doing is actually giving us a, a mnemonic device do you know what a mnemonic device is like um Like, you remember how to do, like, what order you do math problems in by saying, please excuse my dear Aunt Sally, like, you know, parentheses, exponents, multiplication, you know. Or you remember that, like, what are the planets by saying my very excellent mom just served us noodles, right? I realized I had to look up a new one of those because I grew up and Pluto was a planet, but I'm old now and we have to come up with new mnemonic devices that don't have Pluto on them. Right, We teach ourselves memory tricks, triggers that help us learn things, that help us remember things. I'm not even going to get into the Michael Scott level mnemonic devices that I use to remember names because they're weird and idiosyncratic. But that's what this passage is. This passage is a way for us to remember because it's kind of like a key word that keeps changing because first he keeps saying like, oh, if you, if you do this and it causes you to sin and then the the word changes and he's talking about fire and then he finishes by talking about salt and you can kind of see that progression. And if you see that, it's easy to remember all of these things that he's saying, but all of them are reminding us of our dependence on God. We have to be dependent on God when we teach others, especially when we teach children. God reminds us of the grave consequences of what happens when we lead children away from him. We can't battle sin in our lives apart from the power of God. We can't live through tricks and human means Because our sin requires divine intervention, requires divine intervention when we became Christians and in our lives as we continue to be Christians. We have to throw ourselves on the mercy of God in order to ever see change in our lives. And if we don't, he says, we risk hell. He says, it's better to cut your hand off than to go into hell with two hands. And he says our lives won't be easy. He he has this verse that I, I never noticed before this week. I've read Mark a, a bunch of times. But he has this verse that's sort of kind of heavy metal. He, he says, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. If that's not like the cover of a dark album, I don't know what is. Everyone will be salted with fire. But what he's telling us is that all of us are gonna have trials and tribulations sprinkled throughout our lives. Not everything is going to be easy. He promises you it will not. And then he concludes by showing the way that the rhythms of the Spirit of God, living in tune with what God is doing, being dependent on him, changes the way that we treat one another. He borrows this language of salt, but he's doing something a little bit different. He's reminding them that when they would bring their sacrifices in the Old Testament, they would bring salt along with it. They would salt the meat so that it could be shared and eaten. As we depend on the Holy Spirit, we'll live as brothers and sisters united by the person of Jesus. We'll be in covenant with one another, where we give ourselves wholly to each other, where we forgive each other's trespasses, where we invite one another into our tables and our home, where we look out for the lives of one another, where we teach one another's children, where we help them when our when our parents are at their wits end. This whole thing has been about the dependence on Jesus that we as Christians need to grow in. And as he's walked through this, Jesus has again and again shown the, the origin of this. Because throughout this passage, he keeps reminding his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem where he's going to die. As soon as he came down off the mountain, he told them that. And Mark says, and the disciples didn't get it. And then when they're on their way to Capernaum, as they're moving town to town, Jesus tells them again, and Mark tells us, and they didn't get it, and they were too afraid to ask. I mean, it's literally the point where the disciples keep hearing the story of Jesus going to die and they don't understand it. And at this point, they're too afraid to ask what it means. And yet, and yet the dependence that we have on God that began when we looked to the cross the first time is the same dependence that we show time after time. The dependence of the cross of Jesus is not the starting point of the Christian life. It's not like we go, oh, I needed Jesus, good, got that, and now we'll move on to something else. But rather, this is the day-to-day, moment-by-moment rhythm of the Christian life. Beloved, let us see the beauty in the fact that God has sent his Holy Spirit into our lives. Let us treasure that so much that we become dependent on him. Let's give up our self-righteousness and our self-preservation projects and live with abandon as people have been made whole and been made new by the power that comes from outside of us. Let us cry out together with the father of this passage, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's pray.